Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Daniel McCool, who is the editor of The Most Fundamental Right, Contrasting Perspectives on the Voting Rights Act. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the real pleasure to talk with Dan McCool. Dan, how are you doing? I'm fine, Heath. How are you? Great, Dan. You're the author of The Most Fundamental Right, um, which I really enjoyed reading. Before we get to the actual book, I'm always very interested um, in sort of what, what came before this publication. Um, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about yourself and about where this book comes from. I know that you've written on the subject matter uh, before. Well, this is my either my eighth or ninth book, depending on how you count the last two, two of came out simultaneously. And the other books on river restoration has absolutely nothing to do with the Voting Rights Act. So mm-hmm. uh, I have two very disparate sets of interests. Uh, a previous book that I co-authored with a colleague and a graduate student was called uh, Native Vote, and it looked at Voting Rights Act cases in Indian country and analyzed the uh, uh, about 72 Voting Rights Act cases where the plaintiffs were American Indians. I've been writing about Indian voting rights for quite some time, but that led to a larger interest in the Voting Rights Act, which was uh, renewed in 2006. And the renewal, even though there were very lopsided majorities Yeah, you know, and and I have to say before I before I um, got the book, 
You know, my impression of the Voting Rights Act was that it was obviously a very significant part of the civil rights legislation, but that this was someone, something that was sort of technical and procedural and, and, and wasn't juicy in, in the ways that you describe. And, and I think one of the really interesting things about the book is, you know, is, is exactly as you say, that how fundamental this, these, these issues are and, and how um, they may have changed over time. That is much of the subject of, of the, many of the articles. But the issues haven't gotten any less interesting over the last 50, 40 uh, odd years. Um, how did you put this together in terms of um, uh, choosing the, the authors for the various sections? You set this up as sort of uh, mini debates on, on different issues. Um, were these uh, authors that you had worked with before? Um, how did you go about making these kinds of choices? In looking at the debate over your uh, the 2006 renewal, which, which took place over a period of, I believe, about nine months. I paid close attention to who the, the leading voices were on both sides of the debate. Uh, I've been involved in some of the Voting Rights Act cases in Indian country as an expert witness, so I knew a couple of, of the leading voices. Uh, but the debate exposed me to people on both sides of this issue, and uh, there's several books out on the VRA, but what's unique about this book is that it, it is a debate in print, and the authors of the various sections are paired in opposition to each other. So I went out looking for the leading voices on both sides of the debate, and uh, I, I think I found them. The, for example, um, the Shelby County case will be or, oral uh, arguments are tomorrow before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the attorney arguing in favor of uh, Section 5 coverage there is a Debo Adegbele. He's the author of the last chapter in the book. He, yeah, I didn't. I didn't even realize that. Yes, and he is. Uh, paired in the book against Edward Bloom. Edward Bloom is the president of the Project on Fair Representation, which brought the Shelby County case. Mm -hmm. so, uh, these, these people are very much in, involved in this debate as, as it continues. Yeah, and, and you know, this is the sort of the timeliness in a couple of different ways. I was really struck by, you know, the, the, the most obvious of the first was the importance of uh, voting rights and the, the controversy at the state level that we saw in uh, 2012. But then, but then following that, as if that wasn't enough, this Supreme Court taking up this case. And so um, maybe you could put this into a little bit of historical context for us. Um, that's sort of what your introductory chapter does. What, where did this start? You know, we, we sort of probably all know the facts of, of when this was passed, but um, maybe you could give just sort of the real short history of, of, of where this fits into the, the civil rights movement. Yes, it's, it, uh, you mentioned the, the juicy issues, and at times it's difficult to talk about the Voting Rights Act without delving deeply into fairly technical legal issues. So I, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll do my best to do the, the brief <laughs> history here. Uh, when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, it was a 
very dramatic and some would say draconian piece of legislation, uh, but passed in response to very serious problems regarding uh, the ability of people of color to vote. And they decided to divide the act into two different kinds of sections. Uh, there are permanent sections, and there are sections that have to be periodically renewed. And the most important permanent section is Section 2. And Section 2 outlaws discrimination in voting practices. And the standard is that uh, minorities, or everyone really, deserves an equal opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. That, that's the, the way you go about uh, looking at a Section 2 case. And the temporary provisions center on Section 5, principally, uh, also Section 203, which is the language assistance provisions. But sec Section 5 is the focus of the Shelby County case, and it was the focus of the Austin Municipal case uh, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, that is temporary in that it has to be renewed. And uh, over time, Congress has renewed the temporary provisions uh, four different times. And in each case, it just happened to be signed. All the renewals happened to be signed by Republican presidents. So uh, George W. Bush signed the 2006 uh, renewal of the temporary provisions, and they were renewed for another 25 years. And that's the focus of so many of the court cases today is uh, Section 5. And what that says is... The Congress took a long, hard look at jurisdictions throughout the country that had a long history of racism and very concerted efforts to either prevent or deny or abridge the ability of minorities to vote. And it includes uh, the nine states, uh, all of them, uh, in the, the old Confederacy, the South, and then portions of seven other states. And it said before any of those covered, those are called covered jurisdictions, before any of those covered jurisdictions can make any changes to elections, law, or election procedures, it has to be approved by the U.S. Justice Department. And the reason why Congress did that is because they anticipated a large number of problematic changes that were designed to inhibit or or uh, disparage minority uh, voting uh, opportunities. And, and indeed, uh, the Justice Department has objected to literally thousands and thousands of proposed changes in election laws. The important thing that we need to remember for Shelby County in the current debate is that those jurisdictions can bail out of the Section 5 coverage. If they have a clean record, there haven't been Section 2 cases, there haven't been a lot of Department of Justice objections, and they can clearly demonstrate that they're not making uh, racist laws or trying to pass mm -hmm. election changes that uh, reduce the ability of minorities to elect candidates or the choice they can bail out. It's, a, it's actually mm -hmm. a fairly straightforward uh, 
Shelby County is still covered, and that's why they're going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Where in the Department of Justice are these, um, the, the, the preclearance uh, or the clearance actually given? Is this the Office of Civil Rights, or is there, uh, who's in charge of this? It's the voting section. Okay. Okay. Now, well, that's that's one of the big pieces. Of the other big piece that you mentioned is is the Section 203, which is uh, in reference to language issues. This is probably more important today than it was in the past, just because of um, the the immigration patterns over the last 30 odd years. Is is that issue um, been changing in its level of controversy over time? Um, how is that? How does that issue interact with the other issues that are um, more focused on uh, African Americans? The, the language issue being, in certain circumstances, there's the need to provide translated uh, voter information and, and uh, translated ballots. Yes, uh, I think the Section 203 and the language provisions are more important uh, than ever, and I have a pair of, of experts on Section 203 in the book, Roger Clegg uh, argues very forcefully against the language provisions in Section 203, and James Tucker argues very passionately in favor of language assistance. And we see these language assistance cases coming up in Indian country as well as areas of the country where there are significant numbers of recent immigrants and uh, Hispanic voters. So I think we will see more cases on Section 203. It will become increasingly important. Yeah, I do a little work in this area, and one of the things that that I've been very intrigued by is is you you only get this language coverage if the local community... if a certain size of uh, language uh, group is uh, makes up a local community, meaning that if there's just a very small number of people speaking a certain language, they they aren't uh, given that kind of um, translated uh, uh, ballot information access, which would which is sort of paradoxical because that might those might be the very people you would be most concerned about being disenfranchised because of because of their small numbers. On on this the, the controversy between the that you you present uh, you present a number of them in the book uh, were there any in particular that you felt like going in you were on one side but came out feeling like you know I my either mind has been changed or or I have now seen this this issue in a in a new way any you don't have to sort of tell us which side you started and which side you ended but but any in particular that you were just struck by you know putting these side by side I really can see this issue in a much clearer way than when I didn't see them put right next to each other. Well, I I certainly learned a great deal about the arguments on both sides. I I should stress that although I have been involved in some VRA cases, uh, my role in this book was as a totally neutral editor. And I wrote the first chapter of the book as neutrally as I possibly could, and I submitted it to all the other chapter authors who represent both sides on these and said, am I, am I neutral here? Did I, did I object even fairly represent the uh, issues presented by both sides? And, and they all agreed that I had. So I, I think I achieved 
neutrality in chapter one. Of course, mm-hmm. that is the only chapter of the book that is not uh, uh, written from an advocacy perspective. The rest, the rest of them are written with uh, either a, a pro or a con perspective. I think what's what was useful for me and what I think is useful for the readers is that it, it's very easy to hear just one side on the voting rights issue. And it may depend on your source of news or who your friends are or, or what have you. Uh, if you read this book, you will get the complete arguments on both sides by the leading advocates on both sides. So, uh, it helps one get a, a comprehensive and balanced uh, interpretation of what this debate is about and, and what the VRA uh, is about. And it has sort of a projection towards the future, what kind of role the VRA plays in, it in, in the contemporary world. A lot of the discussion about Section 5 is, well, it, it's based on uh, voting rights problems that existed in 1965, and it's a different world today. Well, what is the role of the Voting Rights Act in the contemporary world today? And I, I think this, the authors of this book do a good job of really bringing it up today. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and I couldn't agree more with the, the impartiality that you brought to Chapter 1 in you know reading about these very controversial issues. You just kept expecting there must be there must be opinion buried in here somewhere, and I think you did a very good, and it was very necessary given the setup of the book for the first chapter to be written in that fashion. And I know how difficult writing in that fashion is when you're so deeply enmeshed in an issue. And so I think you really did succeed, as did the authors who took on their very different challenge, which was to articulate a very specific side of each one of these arguments. And so I think it just came together in, in that really interesting way. What I always like to, to ask when, when someone has a new book that's come out is, is what's next on their on their horizon. And so, what's what's next for you? Do you have a upcoming book project um, on this subject or another subject? What's what's on the horizon for you? Uh, I do. Uh, the next project is going to be essentially a sequel to Native Vote. Native Vote was all about the effort to achieve for American Indians uh, an equal right to vote. There's been a long history. Most people think of the VRA, they think of the South, and they think of black voters. There's actually been a very long and persistent history of denying or abridging the vote of American Indians. And with over 70 VRA cases in Indian country, uh, Indians now have right to vote. And Native Vote was about the effort to get that equal right to vote. And that corresponded with a period in time when there was a dramatic effort to register Indians to vote and to get them to the polls and really utilize those those newfound rights. And the next question for me is, have they been effective? Are Indians voting? There's a lot of anecdotal information that Indians have voted, that they've actually swung several elections. And I want to look at that in a systematic way to assess the efficacy of the voting rights movement in 
Indian country. What, who's voting, at what extent, how is it compared to non-Indian voters, and what impact are they having on elections? Are they actually swinging elections? Are they, uh, are they having an impact on the campaigns of candidates where there are significant Indian voters? So, uh, the real, sort of the real politic of having the right to vote and use it. Well, I hope that when that book comes out, and it sounds like uh, it will come out soon, uh, that you'll come back and, and talk to us uh, about that book. In, in the meantime, uh, The Most Fundamental Right, uh, Contrasting Perspectives on the Voting Rights Act that Dan McCool has edited is available from Indiana University Press, both at their website. I'm sure that's also available on Amazon. Dan, thank you very much for your time today. All right, Heath, thank you so much for uh, talking with me.